Let's pray together as we look to God's word. Spirit of God, please be with us and at work in us today. Open our ears to hear the truth and beauty of Jesus, our Savior. May his word come alive to us and change us. Please show us what we need to see this morning so that we might be a renewed people who follow you. Be glorified in us and in our lives, we pray. Amen. So if I were to hold up two pictures right now, and one of them was of a beautiful Middle Eastern temple that was built 2,033 years ago, and the other one was a picture of you, and I were to say, what do these two things have in common? What would you say? You probably would say, not a lot, right? Uh, It's kind of hard to see the connections between ourselves and maybe an ancient temple. But as we look to God's word in Mark chapter 13, that's actually what we're going to hear about. We're going to hear about a connection between you and an ancient temple built in the first century B.C. So from Mark chapter 13, it begins like this. And as he came out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. We'll pause there for a little history to explain this. There was a great ruler in that region named Herod the Great, governor of Judea. He was from an elite family that had converted to Judaism before Herod was born. They converted more for pragmatic reasons than religious ones. They wanted to be part of the ruling class in that region. And so they adopted the customs of the people in that region in order to better sort of fit in uh, and increase their likelihood of being uh, in the ruling class there in Judea. The true Jews, like the Pharisees, didn't consider Herod and his family to really be a part of their culture. They, They resented him. They hated his partnership with Rome. And they were very hostile to Herod and to his rule. But in the end, the plan worked. Herod became governor of Judea, about the same time that Caesar Augustus became the emperor of Rome. Herod decided to build something that would be his legacy, the the lasting legacy of his greatness. And so in 19 BC, he started a new project. He was going to rebuild the great temple of Jerusalem. Plus, he thought, maybe this would earn me some credibility with the locals, you know if I make this this temple that they love, all the greater. And so he went all in on building the temple. He, he spared no expense. He incorporated imported marble, which was the prized uh, building uh, block, building item, construction piece in the Roman Empire. He used all kinds of gold. They carved wooden ceilings. They had all kinds of ornate decorations on the walls. It was a huge project, and it was expensive, as you can imagine. So expensive that it stalled out several times because of a lack of money, because of civil unrest, because of conflict in the region. So approximately 50 years later, when Jesus and his disciples are walking through the temple, it was still actually unfinished at this time. So it's a, the, the disciples are looking at this building, and they're seeing something. They're like, whoa, this is so beautiful, and it's only going to get better, right? Because they're going to finish it one day, and it's going to be amazing. Herod the Great had already died by this point, but the temple construction project led many to call him the greatest builder in Jewish history. 
Of course, he was also a harsh, tyrannical ruler. And so he was also called a madman and an evil genius and all kinds of other things. Um, but it was, his, it was here at Herod's temple that Jesus' disciples say to him, Wow, look, what beautiful stones, what beautiful buildings. Have you ever seen a place so amazing as this in all your life? And Jesus' response could not possibly have been what they were anticipating. Like, whatever they were anticipating, this must have been the last thing. Here's what Jesus says. Verse 2, Jesus said to them, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. I don't know what exactly they were expecting him to say. Maybe something just sort of like, "Uh Uh-huh, sure is beautiful around here. Or maybe they expected something a little more elaborate, like... uh, Wow, it's so good to see a beautiful place being built where people can worship God, and I sure hope they finish it soon. They probably were expecting something like that. But I know that they did not expect him to say, guess what, this whole place is about to be torn down. They're shocked. They're surprised. And so they question Jesus about it. In verse 3, as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew, that is Jesus' inner circle, of most trusted disciples. They asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And starting in verse 5, and going through the end of chapter 13, Jesus responds with a long, strange, and even at times kind of scary prophecy. Over the, re- over the years, readers have, readers have in assessed this part of Mark and said that it's incredibly difficult to understand, really complex, even inaccessible. Some people have said that it's kind of like a 5,000-piece jigsaw puzzle that might come together if we spend enough time and energy putting the pieces together and staring at the box. But it's just as likely that we're going to get frustrated at some point and just put the whole thing away. And maybe, maybe there's some truth to that. Maybe there are some complexities and hidden things in the passage that are difficult to understand. But I think that what Jesus is trying to say here, the main idea of what he's trying to get across is actually pretty straightforward if we keep in mind two things. And the first is this. Notice, that as, we, notice as we read this chapter that Jesus answers their one question with two answers. That's, the, that's one of the keys, one of the two keys to this chapter. Or to put it another way, Jesus uses their question about the temple being torn down as an opportunity to teach them about two different events. The first is the coming destruction of the temple, which is what they asked about. The second is his own future return, which is often called the second coming. This happens in the Bible a lot, actually, Two. Two events, two people, two stories are sort of smashed together, sort of squished together. And the reader is meant to compare the two stories. And the one story is supposed to help illustrate the other one so that we can understand it. The known thing teaches us about the unknown thing. And in this case, the disciples are meant to learn about the parallels between the coming soon destruction of the temple and the later return of Jesus. There are patterns or similarities that will be repeated between the two events so we can learn about the second event because we know, about, we know something about the first one. I'll tell you what the second key is to understanding this passage in a minute. But first, let's hear some of how Jesus answers his disciples' question. When will these things be, they ask. 
And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but is not the end yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginnings of the birth pains. And that birth pains was a commonly used phrase in Jesus' day to describe the time before the Messiah's coming. So Jesus is using their own sort of vernacular way of referring to the Messiah's coming. He's saying, the birth pains are coming. But be on your guard, Jesus says, for they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And then they will bring to you, bring you to trial and deliver you over. Do not be anxious beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And here, just pause right here. This is, this is where I'll tell you about the second key to understanding this passage. The first is to realize Jesus is talking about two separate events. The second is Jesus is intentionally copying the style here of the Old Testament prophets in his answer to the disciples' question. Look at the next verse, verse 14. There Jesus makes a strange reference that might seem obscure to us, but most definitely would not have been obscure to them. The Old Testament prophet Daniel mentions this strange phrase, abomination of desolation. He mentions it three times. In all three times, he's describing the destruction of an entire nation. And not just destruction, but worse. They will be crushed, humiliated, leveled, wiped away. Daniel prophesied about that hundreds of years before Jesus was born. And Daniel's prophecies were fulfilled in 168 B.C. An army led by Antiochus Epiphanes celebrated his conquest of Jerusalem by sacrificing a pig on an altar in the holiest part of the temple in Jerusalem. This event is recorded in the apocryphal book of First Maccabees. And in Jesus' day, that was considered to be the lowest point in the entire history of the Jewish people. Their greatest shame and their greatest humiliation. And by echoing Daniel's words here, Jesus is intentionally taking on the style of an Old Testament prophet it says in verse 15, let the reader understand, Jesus wants his disciples to recognize that he is entering into the Old Testament prophetic tradition and pronouncing the word of God to his people. And in this case, he's declaring that the abomination of desolation is going to be repeated. Listen to what he said, beginning in verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. 
And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that it will not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. And so there you have it. That's the first part of Jesus' response to his disciples' question. When will these things be? When will the temple be torn down? Next week, we'll read the rest of Mark chapter 13 and focus on the second event, which is the second coming of Jesus. But today, we'll focus on the first event, the destruction of the temple. And you should know that everything Jesus predicted here came to pass. In the year 70 A.D., Jerusalem was indeed destroyed, as Jesus predicted. Titus, a Roman general who later became the emperor of Rome, sacked the city and killed as many people as he could, men, women, and children. Herod's temple was looted. Everything of value was taken. It was burned to the ground. And then they did go around and knock as many stones over as they could. And in the ancient Near East, that was a common way of saying, you're not just defeated. You're really defeated. We're not even going to leave stones standing on top of each other. The Arch of Titus, which today still stands next to the Colosseum at the east end of the Forum in Rome, was built to commemorate this Roman victory. The Jewish historian Josephus and the Roman historian Tacitus each echo Jesus' description of this event. In verse 19 and following, they both describe the sacking of Jerusalem in supernatural terms with menacing armies marching in from the sky. That's how they describe it. They describe supernatural voices declaring a destruction beyond anything the world had ever seen. And those are not even Christian sources. Those are not even biblical sources. Those are two historians from the era who who witnessed what had happened. I think it is important to notice, though, even in this dark, dreary passage, this sort of devastating prophecy, I think it's extremely important to notice that Jesus is not describing a situation of pure pessimism in which all is lost. Jesus' words are honest, and he tells us that Dark and difficult things will happen, but that's not where the story he is telling ends. Indeed, this story will end, according to verse 10, with the proclamation of the gospel. The good news of Jesus, the best news, being proclaimed to all nations, it says. And the result of this proclamation to all nations, we read elsewhere will be many, many people's lives being changed in supernatural ways. Their sins will be forgiven. And they will be new people who will think differently and love differently and act differently. 
that sound familiar? I hope so. That's not a tragic part of the story. Look at verse 11. Jesus even promises that in the worst of times, God himself will supernaturally assist his people. All the way down to the words they speak, God the Holy Spirit will personally intervene to help them, to provide them with the response they need, even in the valley of the shadow of death. So it's not a purely tragic story, though it is a pretty awful story. But here's the one thing, one thing from Mark 13 that you most need to know. The one thing from this sermon that you should remember is this. God does not tear things down to leave them that way. God tears things down so that he can rebuild them better than before. God does not tear things down to leave them that way. God tears things down so that he can rebuild them better than before. We see this pattern all over the Bible. Yes, God gets angry about evil and about rebellion, just as he should. And yes, sometimes he judges people and nations. But God does not delight in destruction. Jeremiah and several other Old Testament prophets would often weep when they spoke God's words to the people, particularly when they were speaking about coming destruction. And twice through the prophet Ezekiel, God said that he takes no pleasure in the death of anyone. Don't forget that the prophet speaking here in Mark 13 is the same Jesus who wept over Jerusalem as he entered the city because he knew what was coming. Just a few days before he spoke what we're reading about here in Mark 13. Jesus is not smiling as he describes this terrible scene here in Mark 13. So we see throughout the Bible that God does sometimes destroy, but he does not delight in destruction. Instead, this is how God works. According to the pattern of all the Bible, God tears down people and kings and nations and temples so that he can build them anew, the way that they were meant to be built in the first place. We see this pattern all throughout the Bible. Joseph, the patriarch in Genesis, goes from forsaken slave to savior of the world. So powerful is his story that in Genesis chapter 50, he's able to say, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. So powerful is God's ability to take destruction and evil and turn them into something constructive and good. Moses goes from failed leader, fleeing for his life into exile in the middle of a desert, living amongst sheep. He goes from that to being a greater leader even than the Pharaoh of Egypt. And he becomes the deliverer of Israel. David goes from the hunted hero to the greatest king in Israel's history. The pattern of the book of Judges, of the prophets, of the whole history of the nation of Israel is that the nation goes from judgment to blessing and restoration and not the other way around. That's how God works. We see it even with Jesus himself. The story of Jesus, our Savior, does not say there was a 
a man born of a virgin who grew up and became this great rabbi, this leader, this savior, and then he died on the cross, the end. No, the cross is the beginning of the story of our salvation, and the resurrection is the rest of it. Think about what this destruction of the temple really means. The Jewish people interpreted it as the most catastrophic event imaginable. It was not just awful, it was irrevocably awful. It was permanently awful. It was their last chance to rebuild their nation, which was already being, already hanging by a thread. And there it is, wiped away. But really, Herod's temple was destroyed only so Jesus could build another one. Jesus is ultimately in this passage saying that the malevolent, contentious, irreverent temple of Herod the Great, the evil king, is being replaced by a greater temple, one that is being built by Jesus himself. And the city of Jerusalem, over which Jesus wept because it was a place of evil, hardened hearts, that city, too, is being replaced by a new Jerusalem that will be a place of joy, not tears, love for God, not hardened hearts, and only good, not evil. Read for yourself when you go home today about the fresh new work of Jesus throughout the book of Hebrews, especially in Hebrews chapters 12 and 13. And listen now to how Revelation chapter 21 describes the new Jerusalem the city that Jesus is building. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and earth had passed away, and I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. That's what Jesus is doing, even right now. He's building a new nation, a new city, a new temple. Fair enough, you say, but where is it? Where is this new nation and new temple that Jesus is building? And here it is. Here's where you come in. The new temple is us. St. Peter describes us, the followers of Jesus, who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. He describes us as the living stones out of which Jesus is building his new temple. Now think about this. This, to me, this is absolutely amazing. If God's people are the stones, and the gospel is spreading to the ends of the earth, then where is the new temple? Think about it. The walls that Jesus is building are even right now growing and stretching until they cover every nation, and dare I say it, one day will even surround the entire globe. And then the whole planet will be the new temple. Isn't that amazing? We are the stones he is using to build a temple greater than Herod's temple ever was. 
And in that same passage, St. Peter describes God's people as a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Jesus is building a new nation, and it's us. Once upon a time, only a specific kind of people could come to God in only in one specific place. And now the new nation of God's people is spreading everywhere. And it includes every kind of person, even us. The whole earth will be the new temple. And God will dwell with us and we'll live, we will live in relationship with him just as it was in the garden in Genesis. But things will not simply be restored to what they were. They will be made even better than the original because the pattern of everything that God does is that he does not tear things down and leave them that way. He tears things down so that he can rebuild them better than ever before. And for us today, that means at least two things, maybe more. But let me give you these two. First is this. We have to realize, we have to see our lives when we make an assessment of who we are and what we're doing and the meaning of all of this. We have to see ourselves as a part of something that is way, way bigger than us. Way bigger than us as individuals. Way bigger than us as All Saints Presbyterian Church. Way bigger than Boise, Idaho. And way bigger than the United States. Jesus is at work. And he is building something big and global and permanent and beautiful. Praise God for his power to build. And how amazing is it that Jesus can use even us to accomplish this? He has decided to use you to build the most beautiful building of all. Can you believe it? Despite your flaws and your sins and your insecurities and your inconsistencies, Jesus is building his kingdom in you and through you as we speak. Praise God for his power to build in us and through us. That's the first. We're a part of something way bigger than us. But all this means at least a second thing to us. Our lives, when we look at our lives and we take an assessment, who am I, where am I, and what am I doing? Our lives do not have to be tragic. So often we interpret our lives, our history, our circumstances, our experiences as tragedy. It feels like they start so well off without with so much promise at the beginning, but soon enough we're overwhelmed by pain and bitterness and tears. We can start to feel like the ultimate reality of our lives is a tragedy of suffering and struggling. Let me ask you, do you feel like God has torn you down? It's easy to feel that way. We might even feel that way often. But the pattern of all the rest of God's work is this. He tears down so that he can build something new and better. And that's what he's doing with you. Do you believe that? 
Do you believe that God can take the tearing down of you and use that to do something even better, even more beautiful? Do you find yourself asking with the disciples, when will these things be? When are you going to do it, God? Let me say this. Come close to Jesus. Come and follow the one who says, Behold, I am making all things new. I am, he says, making all things new. Even now. And even you. Amen. Please pray with me. Our Father, thank you for revealing to us in your word the way in which you work. We confess that it is not easy most of the time to see, to understand what you're doing, especially in the midst of struggle, in the midst of suffering. But we pray, Lord, that you would give us confidence, confidence not in our own skills, our own abilities, our own rise above itness, but rather that we would have confidence in your ability to take that which was meant for